Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson. Uh, tonight, our guest is uh, Trina Hope of the University of Oklahoma. Before we start the show, I'm going to do a little blurb for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free-of-charge lay-led support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits, from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting alcohol altogether. Our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon. For more information, go to hamsnetwork.org slash book. Our guest, Trina Hope, is with us right now. How are you doing this evening? I'm great. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm happy to have you here. I was reading uh, an article that you had co-authored that discussed the concept of the professional act um, these are people like ex-drinkers, ex-drug addicts that go into counseling. Uh, actually, I'm going to let you tell us about it. What is a professional ex? Well, um, it's pretty much you, you kind of got it. It's this idea that um, people can take um, essentially what is formerly a deviant status like an alcoholic or a, or a drug addict and essentially recover and then sort of um, reinvent themselves as a non-deviant person, but instead of sort of leaving that prior identity behind, they sort of use that prior identity as a springboard into new roles. And so um, it was um, Brown who originally coined the phrase um, professional X, and he, he just calls them persons who have exited their deviant careers by replacing them with occupations and professional counseling. And so it's it's kind of based on this idea that Deviants can be very fluid, and people can kind of move from having a deviant identity to having a conventional identity. But in this case, they're sort of using that prior identity as a as a way to sort of uh, create a new career for themselves. And and it makes sense, you know, they know sort of what it feels like to be an alcoholic or a drug addict or whatever. And so it, I think, it also sort of gives them legitimacy um, for uh, the clients that that they're working for. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of the starting uh, point, theoretically, um, and then of course the um, the the treatment center sort of scandals in Texas that occurred in the 1990s was really sort of what uh, prompted this this paper to begin with. Mm-hmm. So I want to explain to our audience that uh, what we're doing here we're looking at this from the point of view of sociology. So yes. this uh, concept of deviance is a sociological construct. And yes. to me, I always feel like um, you know, it's really important that psychology and psychiatry and uh, addiction counseling and all these fields that they, they learn from sociology, that, they look, that we interconnect and learn from each other. I think way too often you know, these fields exist in isolation. They don't talk to each other and they don't learn important things from each other. Yes, I agree totally. Um, you know, the, the sociological approach to crime 
is less about here's one individual in front of me, you know, I want to know everything about your history and your childhood and everything. I mean, that would kind of probably be the way a psychologist or a, or a counselor would approach him. Whereas a sociologist, we're more interested in sort of big picture, like group questions, you know, like why does this group of people commit more crime than that group of people? And what does crime look like as a whole? Um, so we're more interested in almost the the more boring, mundane aspects of crime than we are the kind of sexy, interesting. You know, like if you want to understand a serial killer, a sociologist wouldn't really be who you would um, turn to. You'd be more likely to turn to a psychologist. But if you want to know about what are what's the overall picture of crime look like and what are, you know, good policies for addressing crime, then a sociologist is, is going to be your best bet. So, yeah, so we were approaching this as um, – Criminologists and, and you know most criminologists tend to have training in in sociology. I mean, criminology kind of emerged from the discipline of sociology. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, but I agree. I think really... that there needs to be a lot more cross-discipline, um, mm-hmm. you know, interaction, both collaborative collaborative research, but also just reading. You know, sociologists should read what psychologists are doing, and, and vice versa. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, deviance is a really interesting sociological concept because it varies from culture to culture and from age to age. Um, I mean, in some cultures, homosexuality is is highly deviant behavior. We've just gone through a recent kind of revolution where now gay pride is uh, the accepted thing. Um, You know, homophobia is now deviant behavior in the U.S. Right. And, you know, I mean, there's there's kind of two areas within sociology, there's people who really study deviance um, more, who they would be people who would be interested in how does something like homosexuality transition from being considered deviant to, to be considered non-deviant. But most criminologists um, are, tend to be more interested in things that are defined as criminal, although that does obviously change over time too. I mean, you know, homosexuality mm-hmm. in some countries is literally a crime. Um, but for the most part, most criminologists are more interested in studying, um, you know, standard crime like theft and assault and robbery and embezzling and murder and things like that. And and then the perspective that we used in in this paper that we wrote um, is a, a theory out of out of criminology called self control theory, and it kind of looks at crime as part of a broader set of behaviors that sort of have that are tend to be rewarding in the short term but tend to have long-term negative consequences. So, you know, drinking and drug use are, are really good examples of that. Obviously, in moderation, um, drinking and even, in, even most drug use is not particularly harmful. But, you know, it is illegal, and so on average, people who use drugs tend to be a little more risk-taking than people who don't use drugs. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so essentially there's a lot of different behaviors, everything from committing a crime to smoking to gambling that um, have some long-term consequences for people. Um, and so what you find is that people who engage in crime tend to also be, on average, more likely to drink and to smoke and to use drugs and to have unprotected sex and, um, you know, just behaviors that, while in the short term can be quite pleasant, um, oftentimes have long-term, have long-term consequences. So when a criminologist refers to deviance, 
they're more so referring to crime and behaviors that kind of share traits with crime, more so than we would necessarily be thinking about something like mental illness or homosexuality, which is I think fits more in the sociology of deviance um, literature, probably a little bit better than the than the criminology literature. Although there's there's plenty of overlap there, obviously. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we're mm-hmm. when we use the term deviance, we're not. It's not any sort of a value judgment, you know, and I think that that sometimes um, lay people are like, you know, um, I'm not a deviant. It's like, no, I'm not, I'm not using it like you're a deviant. It's just this idea of things that are, um, that either are against the law or that are somewhat non-normative or that can have um, some consequences, you know, um, especially more long-term consequences. So I tend to, to sort of think of all of those together as, as more like um, risky behavior or, um, mm-hmm. you know, behavior that, that um, can have some consequences, if for, particularly more for the long term than for the short term. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And, well, a couple points come to mind I'm going to mention quickly. Um, and one is just the fact that the selling drugs until 1914 – in the United States, you know, selling drugs was not a crime. Um, right. Anybody could sell any drug to anybody. Exactly. And, you know, pe- people took lots of drugs. Nobody got arrested for using heroin because exactly. it wasn't a crime. Exactly. It wasn't, it was nothing Yeah, and a it. lot of heroin users were like middle-class white ladies, you know. Oh, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and so there is that element, and that's important to, to bring up is that um, – some some behaviors are intrinsically risky, um, and like you know, if you if when you get angry at people, you your tendency is to punch them. That's an intrinsically risky personality tra- trait, right? Because eventually you're going to come across somebody who's bigger and stronger than you, and they're going to punch you back, or you're going to lose your job. Whereas using something like heroin, um, you know, it can be risky in the sense that because it's illegal, it's not necessarily very well. Um, regulated or, you know, controlled, but there is also the case, particularly with drugs and alcohol, that society sort of uh, defines the dangerousness of a drug oftentimes by who uses it, right? And Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. when it's middle-class white ladies using the drug, we don't see it as threatening, but if it's non-white, if it's poor people, I mean, if you look at the history of marijuana use as a perfect example, um, it really started to uh, threaten the general public or was posed as threatening when it began um, being associated with, um, like, you know, Mexican immigrants, I think, in, like, the 1920s. And, so, and you know, crack cocaine versus powder cocaine is another example. Um, you know, there's not any evidence that crack cocaine is actually any more dangerous than powder cocaine. But, again, who was using crack cocaine much more um, non-white, poor people. And so we had these huge disparities in punishments for crack cocaine compared to punishments for for powder cocaine. So, yeah, I mean, drugs in general um, can have risky, um, intrinsically risky side effects or, or consequences, but sometimes the risk factor associated with them is more because they're illegal you know, in other words, mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. I have a teenager and I don't I don't want him to smoke pot, not because 
I think pot is bad or dangerous necessarily, but because it's illegal, mm -hmm. if he were to get caught, he could get arrested, and, you know, there's a lot of consequences for that. Um, so, yeah, so, you know, society sometimes takes things that might not necessarily be intrinsically harmful or not as harmful as they appear to be and then make them much more, quote, unquote, deviant by how we respond to them, too. So, and, and particularly drugs and, and alcohol, um, I think, are a really good example of that. I mean, you know, alcohol was illegal mm -hmm. for, you mm -hmm. know, during the Prohibition era. And, I mean, he, this is a really good example, I think, of this. Um, when alcohol was illegal, it attracted criminal element, right, because of the nature of mm -hmm. illegal markets, right? And so we mm -hmm. don't have, you know, the president of Coors and the president of Budweiser like mowing each other down in the street anymore because it's legal. And so also mm -hmm. what, can, what can also be dangerous about illegal drugs, and crack is a good example of that, is the effects that crack had on communities because of the illegal markets, it was arguably much more damaging than the effect that crack had on the people who were actually using it, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and so illegal markets are uh, intrinsically unstable and risky and violent, and so they oftentimes attract people who are willing to take that risk, and oftentimes those are not very nice people. So, so mm -hmm. yeah, so there is a lot of interesting sort of um, – definitional issues, I think, particularly when you're talking about victimless crimes like drug use, alcohol use, gambling, things like that, whereas I think there's, there's less um, controversy over the idea that, you know, hitting somebody on the head and taking their stuff, I think everybody would pretty much agree that that's not something that you really can allow to happen in a society, you know. But I think the victimless mm -hmm. stuff to be um, – much more interesting from a historical point of view to see how people define it and redefine it and the effect of who's using it and how does that affect our perception of the dangerousness of the drug and, and the dangerousness mm. of the users too. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. We also have the fact that when uh, the drug is illegal, you can only get it on the black market. The black market prices yes. are very, very high, which right. makes it very expensive and it can be very difficult um, interestingly, you know, in New York City, uh, New York State, uh, cigarette taxes are like the highest in the country, and there's more cigarette-related crime in New York State than it, almost anywhere else in the country. It's increased greatly uh, in yeah. proportion to the, 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 taxes, the tax increases. Yeah, that, that doesn't surprise me. I mean, most people um, don't really know a lot about what the research on addiction shows, and, you know, nicotine is right up there with heroin. It is one of the most addicting drugs. And, um, you know, when you increase the price of cigarettes, you, it's kind of a dual thing. On the one hand, more people do quit because it just means that, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. the costs are, are higher than the rewards. But some people still want to smoke, and, you know, if it gets the price gets high enough, then you might get, you know, black market or you might get, you know, you know when people talk about people who commit crimes to buy drugs – I think that we assume that it's the highly addictive nature of drugs that's related to that, and that might be part of it, but part of it is also the price, right? Like you mm -hmm. pointed out, illegal markets drive the price of drugs up dramatically, and so that, that actually indirectly probably creates more crime because people can't afford to buy it. You know, if it was cheaper, mm -hmm. people wouldn't need to commit 
crime in order in order to buy. I mean, most people don't commit crime in order to buy alcohol for the most part, for instance, mm-hmm. um, the way that they might to buy to buy other drugs too. So yeah, so illegal markets are really key, I think, when it comes to um, the nature of um, drug habits and who uses and who doesn't use. I think the the more riskier the the market, the more riskier people the more risk takers people involved in the market are going to be. And to a certain extent, the users as well, I think, for a, a little bit, but not as much as the mm-hmm. people in the market. So, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, and we see the case in Switzerland where if you're addicted to heroin, they will give you prescription heroin for free. Uh, yes. And their crime rate dropped dramatically after they started doing yes. that. I think they did that in England, too. I mean, it's the same uh, idea they've as methadone. Not in England. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But again, yeah, you're giving people just enough to sort of take the edge off the withdrawal symptoms, but probably not enough for them to get high. Um, and it's regulated. It's safe. They're not using dirty needles, and it probably enables people to um, either live perfectly functional lives while being addicted to heroin, or it enab- it gives them that cushion to where they can actually, you know, kick the addiction if if that's what they need to. But, but yeah, I mean, from my understanding, and I'm by no means an expert in drugs by any means. I mean, I'm your typical criminologist. I have a, a fair amount of knowledge. But my understanding is the, you know, as long as the heroin you're getting is is not contaminated with anything, the the worst side effect is like constipation or something, which, you know, we've all been there mm-hmm. after surgery when they give you a, hydrocodone or whatever the stuff they give you with codeine and they're like this causes constipation be careful you know so Mm -hmm. and i'm sure you've been um um heard or read about the fact that um there has been a little bit of spike in in heroin use um and they actually attribute it to people becoming addicted to prescription pain medication prescribed by doctors and then they Mm -hmm form an addiction to it, and then they kind of run out of their legitimate sources, and they actually flip from the prescription over to heroin. Um, And that's sort of, you know, weird. You don't think of prescription drugs as, quote-unquote, gateway drugs drugs to illegal. But if people are addicted and they can't get the drug anymore, some of them are going to hop over to the illegal market. So, Well, that's a really interesting point. Uh, because I'm quite familiar with uh, these laws, and they have been enforced very strictly in the last couple of years. And the law is that as soon as a doctor notices that a patient has a dependence on Mm -hmm. an opiate drug, they must immediately cut them off, or the doctor will be put in prison for like 25 years. So as long as your patient is not addicted, you can prescribe them all that they they want, but as soon as you think they're addicted, if you don't cut them off, you, the doctor, go to prison. So yeah. everybody gets cut off as soon as they get to the point that they need it. Yeah, and I mean, and, and then that's sort of, I mean, how do you really know when somebody becomes addicted, too? I mean, that's not necessarily a an obvious crossing point, you know? So, mm-hmm. well, the I mean, it's the, hard. You know, the DEA is on the doctor's asses so bad these days yeah, that uh, yeah. they don't really question very much as soon as they think it's a possibility. Okay, you're cut off. But it's not, yeah. you know, if if doctors could prescribe 
these as maintenance medications for people that needed them to treat their addiction, uh, we wouldn't have anybody switching over to heroin. It's only right. because doctors exactly. are required to cut people off on threat of prison that they yeah. cut everybody off. It's yeah, yeah, it's thing you've ever seen. yeah. It is. It's 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 tough. It's it's very hard. And you know, doctors they don't they don't go to medical school to try to figure out who's a junkie and who's not. You know, I mean, they're trying to help people, and I think the vast majority of them are doing the best that they can. But um, you know, people if if people are motivated to get drugs, you know, they can they can work the system. Um, and you know, I don't know that we can expect doctors to be able to you know, figure out who's who and who's what and everything. So, yeah, it's it's it doesn't seem like a a very uh effective or compassionate approach to the to the issue to me at all. So, well, if doctors were allowed to prescribe the maintenance drugs to pe- people who are addicts, I don't generally right. like the word addict, but uh which they they did early on after the passage right. of the Harrison Act in 1914, they did for several years thereafter. Oh, you're right. an addict. You need morphine. Here's morphine. We'll give you morphine because, you know, it will keep you safe. And then the government, the lawyer said to the to the doctors, oh, we'll put you in prison if you give drugs right. to addicts. Right, because you know, you're basically you're a drug dealer now, right? Yeah, it's all these yeah. politicians trying to practice medicine without a license yeah. that have led <laughs> us to this disaster. Yeah, and they're they're across the they're across the the board. You know, if you look in the uh, the pro-choice, pro-life sort of debates. They call them gyneticians, right? These politicians mm-hmm. who, without uh, medical degrees, kind of getting in the middle of, of medical decisions. But, yeah, politicians are famous for making laws about things that they don't really know very much about. Not all well, politicians, my favorite, but... <laughs> well, my favorite was uh, a century or so ago when the Tennessee state legislature declared officially they passed a law that the value of pi is three. Because <laughs> doggone it, we say it's three, and so it's now three. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> I didn't know that. Uh, I have to remember that one. <laughs> um, I, I'm going to mention one more thing before we get onto the meat of the paper here, which I do want okay. to get into. And because my own history, um, which everybody knows, involves alcohol, I really had very little experience using uh, any illegal drugs, mostly uh, mm-hmm. pot. I tried cocaine one time, didn't do anything for me, had no interest in it. <laughs> uh, did did not do much pot because it tends to make me depressed, so that's not much fun either. Um, <laughs> alcohol is mainly my thing, you know, and I drank a lot to, uh, you know, become physically dependent, have withdrawal and all that, and you know, I'm trying to go through treatment, and I have all these counselors that tell me, well, you have to admit you're a pathological liar. You have to admit that you have all these deviant qualities. I never, I, I'm a pathological truth teller. I'm kind of one of those people that has no tact, or at least right. used to have no tact. I'm growing up a little bit. I'm a little better now, but yeah. <laughs> pathological liar? What the fuck are you talking about? What does it have to do with drinking alcohol? You know, I was very upset to have all these deviant uh, qualities described to me. And if I said, no, that's not me, oh, you're lying now. We can tell your lips are moving because you're denying, because <laughs> you're like us. It's like, what the fuck are you people talking about? That's not me. It was it was very useless as treatment, and that's why I had to uh, 
you know, develop my own system to save my own life. <laughs> okay. Now, I've, I've got well, I mean, let, me, let me say that because well, I think ahead. that that's actually a, a really good point. Um, I, I certainly, um, and the point of our paper is certainly not suggesting that all people with drug or alcohol addiction are also deviant in other ways. I mean, statistically speaking, you know, Mm-hmm. People who engage in crime are more likely to engage in drinking and smoking and that stuff and drug use than people who don't engage in crime. That said, lots mm-hmm. of people are smokers, but they're not deviant in other ways. Lots of people are alcoholics, and they're not deviant in other ways. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I think that um, people are kind of hardwired, um, particularly for alcoholism. It runs in my family. My um, grandfather was an alcoholic. My um Mother's brother was an alcoholic. One of my three brothers is an alcoholic. And, you know, we all drank, and um, uh, you know, in, in college or high school or college. And for some reason there was something about his either personality or the way his brain was wired that the, the alcohol was very, very problematic for him. So I actually do, you know, both from my understanding of the literature and also my personal experiences, I do believe that there are some people – who, for whatever reason, whether it's physiological or psychological, are sort of wired toward addiction, um, and mm-hmm. so that so I don't think that all people who have addiction problems are engaging in other other sorts of deviant behavior. I think that there's um, if you look at people who are addicts, and again, I'm not crazy about that word either. I think it's it's a mix of people. Some of them, their mm-hmm. addiction is part of a general deviant tendency going back you know, into childhood even. And for other people, it's just that one part of their life that for whatever reason, they can't, it, they can't keep it under control. Um, so mm-hmm. I totally um, agree with you that um, we should not paint all people with addictions with one broad um, stroke, that they're all, they're, they're all deviants, because I think that there's a lot of different paths to, mm-hmm. um, to addiction, and particularly alcoholism, I think, um, more than even some other drugs too. Mm-hmm. And so we I'm do with have you some there. good. Mm-hmm. We do have some good epidemiological data these days, because the Dell's doing lots of epidemiological studies, and I looked this up uh, in particular when I was uh, doing one of my presentations. And you know, for uh, people with dependence on illegal drugs, well, more than half of them will engage in adult antisocial behavior, I think it has a lot to do with the price of the drugs being really too damn expensive. Uh, For people with alcohol dependence, uh, definitely less than half of people with uh, alcohol dependence engage in adult antisocial behaviors. And Mm -hmm. these are things like stealing, you know, but it's not everybody that has uh, a dependence on a drug or an alcohol. Actually, the majority do not. Commit right. crimes or steal or do right. all this crap. Which, if you're in a 12-step program, you must you must come clean. You must get right. honest. You must admit your deviance. It's kind of the indoctrination <laughs> into the cult. You know, they did this with communist uh, Russia too. You also had to make false confessions to <laughs> once you were accused <laughs> of shit. Um, it's a it's a really standard brainwashing technique, but. Well, let's get away from that. Let's get on. Let's get on <laughs> to the paper. Okay. Um, so, what did we find with uh, the people that uh, the ex-addicts 
who now become become drug counselors. Uh, what became of them? Were they were they all did they all change from demons to angels? Um, no, apparently not in this case. So um, a little background on the the piece. Um, Susan Sharp was the first author of this paper, and she actually worked in the treatment industry. Um, um, so she got her master's in sociology, and then she went out and worked for a, a number of years in, in treatment and other areas because she was interested in drug addiction, um, her research. And then and then um, she went back and got a Ph.D., and then we are professors together at, at the University of Oklahoma. And so she kind of saw firsthand some of the stuff that was going on and ended up quitting her job because she was so dismayed at all the stuff that was going on. And then the story broke, and there was, you know, a kind of widespread um, issues of corruption and crime and all kinds of stuff that was going on. And then um, so she decided that this would make sort of an, an interesting paper. And so when she, so as, as sociologists, what we do is when things like this happen, we sort of seek to understand them. Okay, what's going on here? How does this fit to the broader literature in sociology mm-hmm. or in criminology, and so she had come up with this um, this professional X idea, and what and this this Texas treatment center scandal sort of contradicted this professional X idea, right? So the professional X idea mm-hmm. is that the person is sort of transformed. Mm-hmm. I have to stop you for a minute uh, okay. because the story was a while ago. It was like in the '90s, so it's like 20 years ago. So most of our listeners probably don't remember this. So what was the story that broke? What oh, was going on? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I didn't even remember it either. I mean, I think if you lived outside of Texas, maybe I don't know how much national news it got because you know we wrote this paper in um, when was it published? I think like 2001. So yeah, so we were. Um, a few years out from it. But yeah, so basically there was just massive corruption among the nonprofit um, drug treatment um, centers. And um, it was everything from the the boards of directors and the people that were running it were giving themselves big bonuses and, um, you know, stealing petty cash and buying sapphire cufflinks and then some of the lower down people were stealing. They were having sex with the clients. They were, um, you know, stealing stuff from work. So, I mean, it was basically just a lot of um, what we would kind of think of as, as white collar crime. You know, using your job in order to in order to um, line your pockets, essentially. So, so yeah, embezzlement, false billing. Um, you know, and all of these, of course, are are taxpayer funded as nonprofit organizations. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, the, you know, the Texas regulatory agency that regulates the, the treatment center, they got into it. Um, there was a huge investigation. And so, so because Susan was actually there when part of this was happening, at least briefly before she quit, she kind of had unique insight into it. And so, um, you know, we looked at all the media coverage, we looked at the official reports, and then Susan actually did interviews with um, some of the people that were directly involved, some of whom, you know, went to jail or or worked with the people who went to jail. Um, So it was just really the fact that she had been there and had these personal connections that enabled us to to also do the little um, sort of ethnographic side of it where, where she conducted the interviews. 
And then essentially she brought me in on it um, because most of my research is, is within self-control theory. And um, self-control theory kind of takes a, a different tack than what the professional X would predict in that self-control theory looks at the fact that, you know, deviance tends to be somewhat general in that if you engage in one type of sort of deviant behavior, you're kind of more likely to engage in other types of deviant behavior. And um, people uh, who engage in deviant behavior at one age are more likely to engage in deviant behavior at another age, and that's what we just call the concept of stability. Um, and stability actually goes back uh, really quite early. It's, it's interesting. This is an example of where criminologists for the longest time thought that all of the interesting action about when crime starts happens in, at, in the teenage years, right? So kids are innocent little sweetie pies, mm -hmm. and then they get to high school or junior high, and then they get kind of corrupted by bad kids, and they start engaging in crime. And um, But um, developmental psychologists tend to do really interesting longitudinal research where they start collecting data on kids when they're like three or four or five, and then they follow them all the way up into their teen years and into adulthood. And lo and behold, what, what the data that was being collected over time was showing is that, um, you know, if you take a group of five-year-olds and you rank them from the nicest, sweetest, most well-behaved five-year-old down to the most obnoxious five-year-old that, that's like lying and beating up on other kids and stealing, um, and then you catch up with those same kids when they're 15, the, even though they're, they're you know, more criminal at 15, obviously, than they are at five, the rankings tend to be pretty stable in the sense that the five-year-olds that were kind of the most antisocial, um, risk-taking, you know, not very nice kids tend to be the 15-year-olds that are now, you know, uh, hitting, you know, beating up other kids, ditching school, cheating, you know, whatever. Um, I don't know, are you familiar with the marshmallow test? Have you heard about the, the famous marshmallow tests? No. So this was brilliant. Um, this was a, a developmental psychologist named um, Walter Mischel, and I think he was at Stanford, and it was in either the late 60s or the early 70s. And he did this test with um, lots and lots of kids over the years, and I think they were about four, five, six-year-old kids. And so they'd put these kids in, in a room, and then um, – they'd pull out a marshmallow, and sometimes they used other things like toys or whatever, but the marshmallow was the main thing. And they'd say, here's a marshmallow, little Johnny. And they'd say, you can, you can have this marshmallow right now, but I have to step out for a few minutes. And if you wait until I come back before you eat that marshmallow, I'll give you another marshmallow. Okay? So this was brilliant because essentially what they were doing was seeing which kids could sort of delay gratification who could resist mm -hmm. eating the marshmallow now because they knew if they waited, they would get two marshmallows, right? So some kids mm -hmm. popped the marshmallow in their mouth before the researcher ever left the room. Some kids would last five minutes. Some kids would last ten. They usually left them there for like 15 minutes. And so basically they just recorded all the kids' scores, right? Did you eat it now? Did you wait one minute, two minutes, three minutes? And, and then they followed up those kids into high school, and they found out that the kids that were better at He's kind of seen the future, delaying gratification, the ones that waited, for, you know, the 15 minutes and got the two marshmallows, that those kids had um, higher IQs, they were less delinquent, they got better grades in school, 
They were ranked by their parents and their teachers as more socially competent, more, you know, sort of together kids. And so in some ways, sorry, my dogs are fighting. Hey, you guys, (laughs) take it easy. Um, (laughs) um, So in some ways, crime is kind of like eating one marshmallow now, you know, Mm -hmm. whereas, you know, resisting the urge to engage in crime is sort of waiting 15 minutes and getting two marshmallows. So that's what stability is. And so if you look at professional exes, and again, we're not saying that all professional exes by any means are are deviant people. But so here you have this example of all this deviance occurring in people who, on the surface at least, were conventional, right? They're professionals. They have jobs. Mm -hmm. They're working in treatment industry. Um, But from the perspective of of sort of self-control theory, it would be like, well, you know, these are people who, in addition to having history of addictions, probably had other, at least some of them, had other issues going on, other maybe risky behaviors they were engaging in along with the, the drug use. And even though they might be have kicked the drugs, that doesn't necessarily mean that they've kicked risk-taking behavior overall. And so essentially mm-hmm. what we kind of concluded is that, you know, that in some ways it's not surprising that a percentage of these professional exes um, were engaging in other forms of deviant behavior, even though they might have stopped using drugs. Um, because on average, if people are engaging in deviant behavior in an earlier part of their life, they are more likely um, in a later part of their life to, to continue to engage in behavior. And, and it's certainly not destiny by any means, like that nobody can be real, rehabilitated. It's just sort of past behavior is a pretty good predictor of future behavior, um, but at the group level. Again, we're not saying at the individual level. So essentially, we thought that sort of this criminological theory of self-control did a better job of explaining what was going on with this Texas treatment scandal um, than this idea of the professional X, which the assumption is that these people are completely um, reborn into a conventional uh, a, a, a lifestyle. So, and you know, and it it it's not necessarily a direct test of the theory by any means because you can't really test theory with you know kind of ethnographic data. But we kind of looked at it as here's something that happened. Um, that was interesting, and here's a theory that we think can help us understand why this happened and how it happened. So that was kind of our approach. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, you know, in my experience, which, of course, experience doesn't tell you anything in science, but <laughs> I'm going to share it anyway. Cause it, I, I mean, I've known a lot of uh, people with uh, substance dependence. Uh, some have dependence on alcohol. Some have dependence on illegal drugs or heroin. I know a lot of heroin mm-hmm. users, uh, current and past. And uh, my experience has been, you know, there, there are a lot of people that use heroin and they're dependent. They're still, at heart, very honest people. They're, you know, very sweet people. And they kind of re- tend to retain the same personality after they quit. And there's mm-hmm. a lot of others that are just, uh, you know, crook and scam artists that you couldn't trust farther than you can throw a bull by the horns. And they whether kind of they're using to, or not using. Whether they're using or not using. I, you know, yeah. I don't, in my experience, yeah. oh, you know, at least a lot of people, they tend to be the same. Although, you know, when they're using and they have no money, they get driven to desperate measures sometimes. But, it, you know, it's opposed to their basic nature. 
that's been my observation. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that, again, it's it's a mixed bag. I mean, what we can say um, from a purely sort of numbers point of view is that um, people who use drugs, now this doesn't necessarily mean people who are addicted to drugs, because, you know, it could be that you have this population of people who use drugs, right, and mm-hmm. a tiny portion of them become addicted. So I don't necessarily automatically think that the people who are addicted are going to be a lot more deviant or maybe any more deviant than the people who aren't addicted but just use, right? Um, Now, -hmm. some people, if their addiction is strong enough and the drug that they use is expensive enough, then they may be committing some crime in order to to, um, fund their habit. But um, I don't necessarily distinguish that strongly between people who become addicted and people who just use, you know, because really what the difference between somebody who uses and somebody who uses and becomes addicted might just be some little synapse in your brain or whatever, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so I think what we can say from a pers- the perspective of what, you know, the numbers show is that, um, you know, people who use drugs as a group tend to also engage in other deviant behaviors at higher levels than people who don't use drugs. And mm-hmm. um, and that's because for, for some people, using drugs is just one sort of semi-risky behavior that they engage in. Um, and uh, and so, you know, a percentage of, of people who use drugs become addicted. Some of the people who become addicted are not, not particularly deviant. Some of the people who become addicted are, like you kind of pointed out. And I think that um, now what would be really interesting and what our research wasn't able to do is I would love to to just look at professional exes and compare them to people who are no longer addicted but who aren't professional exes. And mm-hmm. are the professional exes more deviant? Or are they less deviant? Is there something about becoming a professional ex that actually selected for the people who were more deviant? And, you know, I mean, we don't really Mm -hmm. know that. And I think that would be Mm -hmm. very interesting to figure out, well, is there something unique about people who become professional exes, right? Because the majority Mm -hmm. of people who recover from drug or alcohol addiction don't parlay it into a career, right? Um, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They just, you know, they get on with their lives or they continue with whatever career they had. And so it's what we can't answer and what we don't know is how do professional exes differ from other people who are no longer addicted but who aren't working in those types of of professions. Um, And so there may be something going on there. I mean, maybe professional exes Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. are just people who – for whatever reason, I'm not. I don't really know what it would be, what it would be that it's tapping into. But I think that that would be, if I were to ever sort of go back and revisit this, I think that would be a really, really interesting question to see how they differ mm-hmm. from people who have recovered but are not these um, have not turned their recovery into a profession. Essentially, I think that would be really mm-hmm. cool. I would also really like to look at the difference between the people that went through a 12-step program in particular, but people who went through a treatment to get re- to recover versus the people who recovered on their own, which is actually yeah. the vast majority. 
But, you know, from my experience in treatment, and as I said before, my drug of choice was alcohol. I hardly had anything to do with the, the with uh, illegal drugs, and that was uh, many years behind me anyway at the point that I became dependent on alcohol. Um, you know, but, you know, I was taught in treatment that the, there are two classes of people, of course. So there are the social drinkers who are normal human beings, and then there's this <laughs> abrupt transition into the alcoholics who are completely deviant, uh, pathological liars who just steal everything they get their hands on. And, you know, it's a complete black and white transition. So, you know, and so, like, majority of people who drink alcohol are social drinkers, and they never harm anyone, and then there's this abrupt transition into from the angels to the demons who are the alcoholics. Yeah, and of course, that's ridiculous, right? I mean, we all oh, know yeah. we all know that people do dumb things when they're drunk sometimes, and they don't have to be an alcoholic, right? I mean, some people, you know, beat up their girlfriends or beat up their wives or do all kinds of different things, and that doesn't necessarily mean that you're an alcoholic, right? It just means that you're an asshole when you drink or whatever. Yeah, so, yeah, I think that that notion that there's two categories of drinkers is 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 ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, you don't have to be an alcoholic for you to do harmful things while you're drunk. And, in fact, um, you know, if you look at crime, like murders and rapes, um, a huge percentage of them, alcohol is involved. Um, not illegal drugs. Alcohol is so much more related to crime. And are the majority of people committing crimes while they're drunk alcoholics? No, they're not. They're just people who drink too much, right, and do dumb things. Um, but just because you drink and do dumb things doesn't mean you're an alcoholic. Now, it might mean that you are somebody who doesn't think about the consequences. So if you know that when you're drunk you tend to do dumb things – if you're future-oriented, you're going to be like, well, then maybe I don't want to get drunk or I don't want to get that drunk. But if you're thinking about, well, it's more fun to get drunk and I'll you know, let tomorrow take care of itself. And so you can see how that would tap into people who are not as future-oriented and, and a little more risk-taking in that they know that they might be more likely to do stupid things when they're drunk, but they still go ahead and do it because it's fun or whatever. You know, mm-hmm. um, and I think mm-hmm. that that's tapping into something different than being an alcoholic, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, I mean, where is that line? I mean, what's the official definition of being? You know, at what point does it transition to alcoholism? Is there a, is there a kind of an agreement in the field about what makes someone an alcoholic? Well, you know, there there is the DSM categories, which have yeah. uh, changed again with the new DSM five. And so, um, what do they say? I'm not. I actually don't know that. Um, essentially, uh, drug or alcohol dependence is defined by impairment, um, which actually is a pretty good definition now. So, if it's actually causing problems in your life, if it's messing with your ability to work or make a living or function. It basically, mm-hmm. if it's messing with your ability to function, then you have a substance use disorder. Okay. And, uh, you know, the new DSM is doesn't say anything about treatment, but most people are more like, yeah, and if you cut back so you, that you're functional again, then you don't have the disorder anymore. And, you know, they recognize moderation outcomes. Mm-hmm. Uh, the psych- the uh, psychiatric community and psychological community have uh, they progressed a lot. There's still many treatment centers, of course, where, um, you know, the uh, 
the definition of the alcoholic is, did you come in for an assessment? If you came in to be assessed, <laughs> it proves that you have the disease. You're an alcoholic. And, yeah, yeah, and that means we can get your money. Have you um, – oh, I wish I could remember the guy's name. I should have – I should have um looked this up before I before you called. Um there's a there's a, a guy who's doing research and I don't know if he's in in psychology or he or if he's in epidemiology, but he's been doing some interesting stuff um with rats and he's kind of making this argument that um drug addiction is much more related to sort of um social isolation. Um oh, so you know you hear about Bruce Alexander, the rat park experiments, yes? Yeah, who who showed that when you put the rats with other rats and they have toys and stuff, that they don't become addicted mm-hmm. to cocaine, but you, when you put them alone and they're lonely and bored and isolated, they do. I mean, I think that stuff yes. is really interesting. Oh, yeah. Bruce Alexander was on our show uh, several years ago, and we talked about the rat park. The rat park experiments, you know, they was, these were done way back in the 1970s. You know, oh, my gosh. Well, yeah, but uh, yeah, it's you know, so weird the, that it's just getting attention now. I mean, at least maybe I just haven't been paying attention, but uh, it it was totally ignored by the mainstream addiction treatment oh, okay. the community because it wasn't going to help them make money. Um, right, you know, they got money by you know, as I said, when you come in for an assessment, oh, you're getting assessed. It proves you you're an addict. Uh, right, give us your bank account. Basically, <laughs> give us all your money. And once your bank account is empty, uh, we'll kick you out whether you're cured or not. Right. So You're cured, so we're I mean, going to somebody with a full bank account. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I, I mean, treatment centers, uh, as you found, they're the home of crooks and scam artists. Um, and another, another thing I want to mention, because my friend Monica, who has her own show, is probably going to listen to this show, too. And she's uh, been involved in trying to stop, you know, 13th-stepping in AA, uh, you know, mm-hmm. where older members take sexual advantage of newcomers or they take financial oh, advantage. Oh, yeah. And, you know, she's found an overwhelming amount of, you know, women have been raped in AA and, you know, or sexually well, harassed. Well, that really, yeah, and that kind of fits a little bit with, you know, again, we're not saying that all people who go to AA are deviant, but a percentage of them probably are, and they're going to take advantage of whatever opportunities are available to them. And if so, if sponsoring, a, you know, somebody young and vulnerable can get you access to them, then you're going to take advantage of that. Yeah, um, and on top of that, I mean, so many judges these days are sentencing sex offenders to AA, some of them who've never had substance use problems, but, you know, Oh, we're not going to send you to prison or jail. We'll send you to AA meetings instead. I mean, it's like you know. Oh my goodness! Uh, wow. It's like sentencing the wolves into the sheep pen. Yeah, know? exactly. We're going to lock you up with the sheep. You know. Yeah, that's scary. That's very scary. So, yeah. So, um, but yeah, I mean, it it was. I thought it was an interesting paper, and it was. Um, it was a. It was a. It was a. I mean, it's always, I think, fun as an academic when you can sort of take something that happens in the real world and and try to sort of use, um, you know, the theories of your discipline to kind of understand it in a way that is is pretty accessible. You know, I mean, that's the 
advantage of doing more ethnographic research is that, um, you know, you don't have to have training in statistics and read a bunch of, you know, formulas and tables and stuff to kind of understand that, oh, okay, I can see how, how this makes sense and how this works. And so um, it was a, it was a, I really enjoyed that paper and I hadn't read it in years. And so this, this afternoon um, in anticipation of this call, I pulled it out and read it and I'm like, Hey, I, I think that holds up pretty well. I think it's a pretty interesting little paper. So, you know, I think it's, a, I think it's really uh, interesting. I think it's really important it has a really important message because, uh, you know, on television we're constantly bombarded with this message of redemption through the through treatment, redemption through the right. twelve steps, redemption through addiction treatment. And you know, I was this horrible monster who sunk to this low, and now I'm reformed, <laughs> and I am you know cured, and I'm I'm reformed through the power of this program and this God and this higher power and all this crap. And those are the people that I don't trust in the least when I hear that shit come out of their mouth. Yeah, and I think the truth is is very much in between that, you know. Um, People who have addictions, um, some of them are monsters and some of them are not and some of them are in between. And people who are recovered, some of them are are monsters, you know. And I, I think that this stability is important in the sense that, you know, what were you doing before you recovered? Right? Were you just mm-hmm. an alcoholic who didn't do anything else, or were you an alcoholic who also beat up your wife, knocked off liquor stores, cheated on your taxes? Right? I mean, recovering from alcoholism isn't necessarily going to stop you from doing all those other things if if you were doing them. Um, and for some people, you know, they were the they were the five year olds that were going for the one marshmallow, right? And so I think that what we were interested in is is the people that the alcoholism or the drug addiction wasn't necessarily their main problem, right? So for some people, the alcoholism or the drug addiction is just one of many problems. And just because you cure that one problem, it doesn't mean that they give up all the other things that they were doing in the past as well. Um, So I think that that shows that, um, that among people who have addiction problems, that they're not all the same. Right, they're not all mm-hmm. people who either only have an addiction problem and don't do anything else, but they're also not people who all of their other deviance is because of their addiction, right? Mm-hmm. Because these people, their addiction was gone, but they were still engaging in other deviant behaviors. And so I think that that's the another important takeaway point is that um, addiction is one of can be one of many issues that that's going on, and just because you cure the addiction doesn't necessarily mean that you cure everything. Um, mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I I think that was interesting too because I think a lot of people assume that when people who are addicted are engaging in other behaviors, they assume that the addiction is what's fueling that, and it may be fueling mm-hmm. part of it, but oftentimes it's the addiction is just one of many things that they're engaging mm-hmm. in. And just because you cure the addiction doesn't mean that you cure the low self-control, you know, that sort of impulsive, mm-hmm. you know, I'm going to take advantage of other people type type behavior. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, the media has given us a very uh, simplistic and unrealistic and inaccurate picture of addiction and uh, behaviors that accompany it and recovery and the behaviors that accompany it. Yeah, yeah. And that's not a surprise because the media is terrible at reporting crime too. So, 
<laughs> I always joke that, you know, criminologists are some of the most cynical, sort of cranky people because it's so frustrating to listen to the media and to politicians um, talk about this stuff. And, you know, they 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 all have their own purpose, and their purpose is rarely to actually inform people about what the real facts are. Their, their purpose is to sort of um, – with the media, it's to – to pr- provide dramatic stories, and then for politicians, it's usually to scare people into doing whatever it is that they want them to do. So, so yeah, it's um, you know, and that's one of the the for me one of the most important things about my job is sure you know I do research and my research gets published and a few hundred or maybe thousand people read it if I'm lucky, but you know all the students that I teach, trying to teach them critical thinking skills to do their research, um, you know, just just to be a little more uh critical about what the media tells you and to and to be a more um a more savvy consumer of information. Um I think mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. I feel like it, that is the most important thing that I do as an academic is is trying to teach my students to think critically and so that when they leave the university they are they are more informed citizens and more critically thinking citizens um, and less influenced by emotion and sort of fear tactics and misinformation and stuff like that. So, mm-hmm. but you know, this you, brings us, yeah, this brings us right around full circle to where I started from, which is, I think that uh, people in psychology, psychiatry, they definitely all need to learn some sociology, which I've kind of had to pick up on my own. But, you know, because people will argue, oh, is addiction a disease? Is homosexuality a disease? No, science tells us homosexuality is not a disease. Well, science didn't tell us that. A popular vote of the APA said (laughs) homosexuality is not a disease. Uh, You know, what is deviant and what is not is determined by society to a great deal. And, you know, it's... uh, we need more awareness, you know, people working in psychology need more awareness of sociology to inform their concepts. Uh, are you familiar with a man named Thomas Zaz, who wrote a book called The Myth of Mental Illness? No, I'm not. How do you spell Zaz, Z-A-H-S? S S Z A S Z. Oh, wow. Zaz, okay. Like, yeah. Like from Romania, so what's it Romania or somewhere. The Myth of Mental Illness. Oh, very interesting. Yes, published in the 1960s. He's really questioned about, you know, do we give people labels? Do we label behaviors that we don't like mental illness so that we can lock people up that we don't, whose behaviors we don't like and get them yeah. out of our faces? Yeah. Well, I mean, if you think about, um, you know, sociologists tend to be very um, – trained in statistics and stuff. And, and and if you think about this idea of a normal distribution, right, the bell curve idea, mm-hmm. um, you know, I mean, most people's behavior and traits, whether it's height or IQ or whatever, you know, most of us are kind of in that big middle. And then you have people who are, you know, on the right-hand side who score unusually high and on the left-hand side who score unusually low. And, I mean, I mean everything pretty much is is distributed that way and so as and society gets to decide you know how far out to the on the two tails do you have to get before you become deviant or abnormal or whatever but but really it's just 
it's just extreme ends of the same sort of behavior. And so, you know, I mean, I think that that is uh, the interesting thing about people who study deviance from a broader point of view is where does that line come, you know? What's the difference Mm -hmm. between somebody who's eccentric and somebody who's mentally ill? You know, what's the difference between Mm -hmm. somebody who drinks too much and somebody who's an alcoholic? I mean, I don't think those lines are nearly as stark as we wish they were. I mean, I think it makes us feel better to have these ideas of these these categories that we can put people into, but mm-hmm. it's almost always much mushier than, than that. Well, I think ultimately the way it ought to be is uh, it should be determined by is the behavior causing harm to others. And, yes, you know, there's I so agree. many victimless crimes like drug use, prostitution, uh, right. Homosexuality used to be criminal criminal behavior. That was another right. victimless crime. You know, if you're not hurting somebody else with your behavior, the goddamn government needs to, you know, get their nose out of your business. Yes, I am. I and I, I mean, this is probably very common among a lot of sociologists um, because we do see that oftentimes the our attempts to control behavior causes more harm than the behavior itself. Um, but, you know, I, I am I consider myself very much a civil libertarian in the sense that, yeah, if you're not harming anyone else, then um, it's really nobody else's business, you know. And, and I think that, I mean, look at, you, you mentioned, um, uh, I can't, who did you, what country did you mention that gives the, the heroin? Uh, Switzerland, Switzerland. Yeah. Switzerland. Um, you know, you probably are, fully aware of this as well, but, you know, Portugal pretty much decriminalized, legalized everything. Uh, like, mm-hmm. I think it's been probably 10 years now, and it's been hugely mm-hmm. successful, hugely successful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, crime down and even addiction levels down and, um, you know, and so there are models of, of dealing with this that are very different than the approach that we have taken in the U.S., which is to declare a war. Well, you know, we have we we didn't declare a war on drugs. We basically declared a war on the citizens of our country, right? You can't go to war mm-hmm. against your own citizens, and that's essentially what we did. And of course, it was a huge failure, and it's cost so much in um, you know monies, money, taxpayer dollars, and devastating communities and everything else. So, I mean, I do. The one thing I can say that I think is positive is I do think that people are finally. You know, criminologists have known for years and years that the war on drugs was a big, huge flop, but I think it's finally getting across to the general public now. And I do see, you know, very small incremental changes, but at least we're moving in the right direction in terms of I think the incarceration rates are starting to slightly go down. And, you know, I mean, sure, Obama pardoned, I don't know how many people, 31 or something like that, which Mm -hmm. is... I mean, there's 31 less people, but, you know, there's like millions probably that need to be let out. So I'm kind of hopeful that we are moving toward a more compassionate and and more effective way of dealing with, with these issues instead of just locking people up and throwing away the key, which has just proved to be a huge disaster every mm-hmm. way you measure it, you know. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so I'm kind of hopeful, which, you know, I don't say that very often. <laughs> <laughs> well, about very, about criminal justice policy. <laughs> I was very surprised uh, when Obama visited 
prison recently, which uh, no other president has done in since God knows when, if ever. And yeah, and it was said, here in Oklahoma. Oh, I didn't realize that. Uh, yeah, it was. It was. Said, in, it was. Yeah, it was. It was a federal prison in Oklahoma, and of course, you know, we had the people greeting him with Confederate flags and all that stuff. So that was the trip that he was on. He he visited some um, Native American communities. He visited uh, a prison, and yeah. So, but yeah, but I mean, that's a big deal. Yeah, I, I can't remember well, if they said, said that he was. He actually said we need to stop locking up people so much for using drugs. He said this exactly is the wrong policy, and it's just I was yeah. Just and shocked. I mean, that's such a reasonable thing to say. But no president since the war on drugs was declared under Reagan has said that, right? All know, of them have towed the party line, which is you know these are evil people who are destroying our communities, and we need to lock them up and throw away the key, and so. Yeah, so that is a big deal. That's that's very significant, and um, you know, from the point of view of criminal justice policy, traditionally Democrats haven't been much better than Republicans, frankly. But it does oh, no. appear that um, that Obama is sort of moving in a direction that seems more reasonable, um, and so maybe we'll get one of the two parties to actually move in a direction that is, you know, I mean, I mean, you do get some, um, the more, you know, libertarian people like Rand Paul and stuff talking about stuff like this, but mainstream Republicans, um, you know, generally you would never hear something coming out of their mouth. And, and, you know, for the last 30, 40 years, nor would you hear mainstream Democrats saying stuff like that either. So, so this is a big deal. It's a very big deal. The question is whether or not it's going to continue after Obama leaves office. I think that's a, that's the big question. Yeah, I know. Up till now, it was only it was only communists like me and uh, my libertarian <laughs> friends there <laughs> who were saying this drug policy is psychotic. You got to get rid of it. <laughs> yeah, and and really, and even if you take out any sort of philosophical reasoning, just purely from an empirical standpoint, cost. Does it produce the results? It just doesn't. I mean, all of the research has consistently shown that the war on drugs has been a huge, huge failure. Um, So, you know, I mean, there's this um, idea in criminology called, um, you know, evidence-based criminology, and and that's pretty much what we as criminologists do. You know, we do studies, we do research, we try to figure out things work or not. And that's like our dream come true is if if the criminal justice system would move towards evidence-based policy. Um, And right now it's mostly ideology-based policy, not evidence-based policy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And um, and, and that's, you know, it's very frustrating because there's so many things that we could be doing that research shows works, um, but it just doesn't appeal to politicians because it's it's more complex. You know, it doesn't cost any more money. Cost less money, in fact, to oh, yeah. you know send kids to really good preschool. I mean, you get more bang for your buck by taking poor kids and giving putting them in really really great preschool for three years. Um, for every one dollar that you invest in kids in early childhood education, you get like seven dollars back in terms of 
they're less likely to be arrested, they're less likely to go on welfare, they're less likely to become teen moms. Um, and we don't get any of the money back that we invest in um, throwing people in prison. It's just a big, huge mm-hmm. sinkhole of money. Um, but, you know, politicians want to say, I'm tough on crime and I'm going to lower the crime rate by upping the sentence for X, Y, or Z and um, – you know, politicians don't want to say that they don't they don't trust people enough to say, hey, let's put money into this program, and you know, 15 years from now we're going to get a real big payoff when these kids are less likely to start knocking off liquor stores when they're 18 or whatever. Um, so there's just a big gap between what researchers know works and what politicians sort of sell to the public. And they oh, tend absolutely. to like very simplistic stuff. Yeah. And and they 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 um they uh their their uh, currency is fear, um, in a lot of cases, which is very hard to argue with. Well, we could save so much money if we gave people prescription heroin instead of putting them oh, in prison. Sure. I mean well when sure. you give people prescription heroin they stop committing crimes. Because they're happy, they're nodded off. They don't care. Nobody that's high on heroin wants to commit crimes. They only exactly. want to do that when they when they need to buy some because they're in withdrawal. That's that's uh, yeah. and so it's very cheap to give people prescription of heroin. It's very expensive to keep them in prison. But yeah. you know, if you yeah. said the government's going to pay for prescription heroin for addicts. Uh, right. Well, I don't know any politician that's going to uh, put that on his as a plank of his platform. Exactly, exactly. When, and even you don't even have to do anything as dramatic as heroin because, you know, heroin use is actually pretty, pretty rare. I mean, we have, there are thousands, hundreds of thousands of people in prison for marijuana. For marijuana. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. and, I mean, marijuana isn't even an addicting drug. You don't hear about people robbing 7-Elevens to pay for their marijuana habit. Um, you know, maybe shoplifting some Doritos or something, who knows. But, um, you know, I mean, it's just, it's astonishing how much money we have spent just locking up people who have pot. You know, not even necessarily mm-hmm. selling pot. I mean, some of them might be selling a little bit of pot. Um, but, yeah, it's it's astonishing the, the amount of money. And, and when we're bleeding, when our schools and, you know, education and health care and all these other things and the roads and infrastructure – are just so in need of of resources, and we funnel so much money into the criminal justice system. It's yeah, it's very depressing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, well, we're so. actually running over time now, so I think it's uh, time to finish up. What would you like to leave us with this evening? Oh my gosh, <laughs> we talked <laughs> about so much stuff. It's hard to. I mean, I I think that. Um, I think basically I'll leave you with the with a couple things. One is, um, you know, everybody, not just college students, should try to be as informed a consumer as possible. And when you hear politicians talking and you hear people, news media and stuff, be critical, be thoughtful, you know, read more, expand your horizons. Don't just, you know, whether you just w- listen to Fox News or you just watch MSNBC or whatever – you know, expand your horizons, learn things, read things. Um, and then, two, I think that um, with regards to the to the drug addiction and the and and those issues is that you know, and I'm not telling you anything you don't already know, and probably your listeners as well. But it's a lot more complicated than people think, 
And um, for some people, the addiction is the problem. And if they can overcome that addiction, then they're gonna they're gonna a lot of their problems are gonna be solved. But for some people, and the professional exes that we looked at in in our study, um, the drug use was just one of a bunch of different problems that they had and that they continued to have. Um, and so this idea that we can either say all drug addicts are criminals or that all people who are drug addicts um, are only criminal because they're drug addicts, neither of those two things are true, right? Um, there's, mm-hmm. there's a mm-hmm. lot of variation there. And um, for some people whose deviant behavior is, is varied and um, goes back, probably even before they became addicted to a drug, um, uh, recovering from addiction probably makes their lives better in some ways, but it doesn't necessarily guarantee that they're finished with their, with their deviant careers. So um, there's, there's, there's more going on than just, you know, this is a group of people and this is how they look like. And so, um, you know, keep that in mind. It's always more complicated than it seems. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you for being our guest this evening, Trina Hope. You're very welcome, and thank you for having me. This was very fun. I enjoyed it a lot. Okay. We'll see you all next week, everyone. Bye. <laughs> Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.